Second Corinthians chapter 3, let me just say I'm very pleased to be back. I really enjoy worshiping with you people. Uh, I hope you appreciate what you have as a congregation in your worship. I think you do. Um, I also would like to say that the Lord in his providence so often gives us echoes The Sunday school lesson today, you're going to hear some echoes in the sermon today. I love it when the Lord does that. I mean, this the Sunday school lesson today was, I'm just sitting there listening to such a fine lesson and thinking, this is going to be such a great introduction to my sermon. It's going to really support what I have to say. Uh, I love it when the Lord does that. And I want to encourage you all to attend um, that educational time. Um, every time I come, I'm, I'm richly blessed. So I I'm, I'm just wanted to say that. I'm going to be reading the entire chapter of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. That's because of just the, the need to bring this out uh, in preparation. Preparation for the preaching of the sermon text, chapter, I mean, chapter 3, verse 18. So I ask you now to give your undivided attention to the reading of this portion of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we, as some others, epistles of condemnation, Commendation to you or letters of condem, condem, I'll get it, commendation from you. You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not in ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, But of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how shall not the ministry of the Spirit be more glorious. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, because of the glory that excels. For if what was passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, 
beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you great thanks that you have given to us your holy word. For it is indeed alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, we ask that you would use the Spirit to effectively wield that sword in our midst. We ask, Lord, that your blessing upon your word would be evident. That you would work by your Spirit in the preacher. And that you would work by your spirit and those who hear this message. May this be a time of your power. Father, we recognize that we need to be changed. We have already confessed our sin before you this morning. And so we know that you know that we recognize we are sinners. And therefore, we need to be changed. We pray, Father, that you would use not just this message, but, Lord, you would use your word in each one of our lives as we study it and read it and meditate on it to be changed, even into the very image of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The Judaizers were Jewish teachers who professed faith in Christ, but they preached a false gospel. They preached that believers, particularly Gentile believers, must keep the Mosaic law in order to be saved. Shortly after Paul had written 1 Corinthians, certain Judaizers had arrived at Corinth, And they promoted their false teaching there. And one of the chief things that they did to try to support their doctrine was to try to undermine Paul's apostolic authority. Paul wrote 2 Corinthians to combat these Judaizers. And in the third chapter, the one that we just read, what we find presented here by Paul is a series of contrasts between the ministry of the Old Testament and the ministry of the New Testament. And it was brought out in the Sunday School lesson today, there was no problem with the Old Testament. There was no problem. The problem was with the people. And that's why he's contrasting the ministry of the Old Testament with the ministry of the New Testament. He's trying to make sure that those Judaizers cannot convince these Gentile believers that they should fall into the trap of believing that they're justified by keeping the law and by faith. What we have here at the end of the chapter is the last of this series of contrasts. Listen again to verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The great subject, the great topic, the great focus of this verse is found in that verb that is translated, are being transformed. Are being transformed. This text is packed. In this text, Paul presents to us the people, the process, the purpose, the progress, and the producer of this transformation. Look again at how he begins with but. Again, there is this contrast with what proceeds. 
And he here is referring to the people of this transformation to be believers in contrast to the Jews under the Old Covenant. And Paul is actually taking it not only back to the Old Testament time, but even the unbelieving Jews in his own time. He is contrasting those unbelieving Jews with believers in Paul's day, and that carries all the way up to our own time. Now, throughout Israel's history, the majority of the Jews were not regenerated. And so, again, there is this last of these contrasts between the administration of the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. The children of Israel, Paul says, were blinded. He says this, notice this, in verse 14. But their minds were blinded, for until, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. Now that word here that's translated blindness uh, is actually has more of the idea of to, to be hardened, to turn to stone, uh, to form a callus. Uh, that's why the New American Standard accurately, I believe, um, translated, but their minds were hardened. Not just blinded, but hardened. And the word here that's been translated uh, either blinded or hardened, does not refer to stubbornness, which we know the Jews were stubborn. They were refer- described as a stiff-necked people. But no, the idea is their inability to understand the Old Testament scriptures. Paul refers to that veil that's over their hearts as referring to their unbelief. They weren't capable of believing. And particularly, they were incapable of seeing the glory of Christ as he is revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. Look again at verse 14. It says, Their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away. In Christ. Under the new covenant, all believers view the glory of Christ without a veil. And as a result, as they study the scriptures and see the glory of Christ, they, we, are being transformed. The we here, and Paul says, but we all. I don't want to go into the details, but Paul's using emphatic language here to strengthen this contrast. It's almost as though he rolled up his sleeves and pounded on the pulpit and said, but we all. It's kind of hard to bring that out in writing, so maybe that would help you to to understand something here. Now, we, we understand that the all here, or the we, does not refer to everyone within the church. <coughs> we We know... I'm sure you know that not everybody who's in the church is a genuine believer. But So Paul here is speaking to those who study the scriptures without a veil over their eyes as they see with those believing eyes the glory of Christ. So he's only referring here, of course, to true believers. And this is what... We mean when we talk about the people of the transformation. Now, what about the process of this transformation? How does this transformation take place? Well, the means by which you are transformed is beholding the glory of Christ in the scriptures. The context makes that abundantly clear. Now, the NIV says that we reflect the Lord's glory. And apparently what they believe is that the translators thought that the contrast was between Moses and 
us as New Testament believers. But no, that's not what's in view here. It's a contrast between the unbelieving Jews in Paul's day and all the way back prior to Paul's day, all the way actually back to the time of Moses. So Paul here is speaking of us having unveiled faces because we are seeing the glory of Christ when we study the scriptures with, I'm sure you've heard the expression, the eyes of faith, with the eyes of faith. Now, notice also, as a part of this process, I want you to notice that the word here, is translated beholding. The idea is this is an ongoing thing that God's people do. It's an ongoing beholding. It's not sporadic. It's not occasionally. It's on a very regular basis. Beholding is what is happening. This is in contrast to the interrupted viewing of the Lord's glory under the time of Moses. Look back at verse 13. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Paul is pointing back to Exodus chapter 34, verses 34 and 35. I wish I had time to unpack that. But the point here is, There is not to be, with God's people, an interrupted viewing of the glory of the Lord. It's to be ongoing, regularly, steadily. As you hear sermons preached, as you hear Sunday school lesson, as you read the scripture for yourselves, as you sit together and have spousal worship and family worship, There needs to be this sense of one of the main things that we're doing when it comes to handling the Scripture is we are to be seen and looking for the glory of Christ. The the glory of Christ is twofold. There's what theologians call His essential glory. That's His natural attributes, such as the fact that he's infinite, he's, unter- he's eternal and unchangeable. unchangeable. So this refers to the majesty of his divine existence. But also there is his ethical glory. This refers to his moral attributes, his holiness, his justice, his goodness. So this refers to the perfection of his divine character. And we behold the glory of Christ, both his essential and ethical glory, and are being transformed into a people who manifest his ethical glory. Seeing Christ revealed in the scriptures is beholding his glory. But Paul goes on and talks about the manner, not just the means, which is this beholding, but the manner by which we behold. Now, I have the New King James in front of me, and I believe this is the the accurate translation, where we have here beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Now, I know most of you might have an ESV, and that's okay. Um, but there are those translations that have, as the New King James does, beholding as in a mirror. Beholding as in a mirror. Why is this important? Because I think we need to understand it in the context Paul is referring to the Old Testament as a mirror in which we see the glory of Christ. We see the glory of Christ. So this mirror in this context specifically is the Old Testament. Now notice again in verse 14. 
that the Jews read the Old Testament while veiled. But in verse 16, we read that when a man's heart turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Why is the veil taken away? What's the result of the veil being taken away? So that you can understand the Old Testament, particularly in this matter of seeing the glory of Christ in the Old Testament. Boy, I love that Sunday school lesson. It kind of got me wound up a little bit. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. We have one Bible. One Bible. I was raised in a dispensational, in dispensational churches. I just couldn't understand. Why don't these people understand? <laughs> There's one Bible. I mean, how many times? How many times have you heard people say, Oh, well, that's from the Old Testament. And they, so they dismiss whatever you say, whatever you're trying to defend. I like something that Martin Luther wrote in one of his sermons. It is the intention of all the apostles and evangelists in the New Testament to direct and drive us to the Old Testament, which they call the Holy Scriptures proper. Yes, that was predispensational. Do you remember after the Lord rose from the dead at the end of Luke's gospel, Luke 24, that there were two disciples that were on the road to Emmaus and Jesus began walking with them. I love this account. I just love it. And Luke tells us, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and refer to John chapter chapter 5. Verse 39 and 40. You search, this is Paul talking to his Jewish opponents, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. He's talking about the Old Testament, of course. And he's also saying you think that your knowledge of the scripture is going to save you. Mm Mm-mm. Mm-mm. As one person put it, you can have a head full of scripture and a heart full of sin. And these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. It's as the scriptures point us to the one who saves us that he saves us. There was a certain Dr. Moorhead who once brought home a torn up map of the United States. And when he entered the living room, his two little daughters were there on the floor playing. And he decided to give them the map to play with. And he said to them, see if you can put it together, children. And he laughingly tossed the torn up map in a confused heap on the living room floor. Well, his daughters, who were six years old and eight years old, knew nothing about geography. And they soon became discouraged with their efforts to try to put that map back together. And they decided to quit. The younger daughter got up and started to walk away when suddenly the older daughter yelled out, Come back, sister. There's a man in it. It turns out that on the other side of the map... There was a large photograph of the man who had had the map printed up to advertise his business. Well, it didn't take them long to figure out how to put the map together. And so they put it back together and handed it to their astonished father. You see, the Bible 
especially the Old Testament, can be very puzzling. But you must recognize that there is someone who helps you put it all together. And that is Christ himself. And it's easy for us to see the New Testament as a source of our knowledge of Christ, of our source of seeing the glory of Christ. When it comes to the Old Testament, our tendency is only to see him in the types and the foreshadowings and the prophecies concerning them. And they are very important. But what is often overlooked, what is often overlooked is the role of the second person of the Trinity. That we see in the Old Testament. I want you to listen to Hebrews Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him, who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in all his house. This is really the key verse here. For this one, that's referring to Christ, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he, referring to Christ, who built the house, has more honor than the house. We can stop right there. What is the point that the author of Hebrews is making here? He is saying that Christ is worthy of more glory than Moses is because Christ built the house of which Moses was a part. If you don't believe me, look at it again. Read it after, read it this afternoon. That's his point. Moses was a part of the house that Christ built. Do you believe that? All right. A.A. Hodge. He wrote a book on theology called, the title of his Outlines of Theology. If you don't own it, I would recommend it. But he correctly points out, and I'm quoting now, The Jehovah who manifested himself as the God of the Jews under the old economy was the second person of the Trinity who became incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth. I firmly believe that. His father, Charles Hodge, also makes a very similar statement. I remember one time I preached this back when I was the pastor of the OPC church uh, there in the Greenville area, and there was an elder from an OPC church that was visiting, and after the service, he ran up to me and, and like, like I was a heretic because I said what I said about Jehovah being the manifested Jehovah of the Old Testament. Uh, he said, well, where did you get this? You know, I haven't heard this before, and I kept thinking, well, you know, I did quote both Hodges. <laughs> This is an old teaching, but it's been lost by God's people, I'm afraid. I want you to listen to this from John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. Now, the reference there, the word God, has to refer to God the Father. And it is actually quite true that no human being in this life has ever seen God the Father. But when we come to Genesis chapter 18 and verse 1, we read that Jehovah appeared to Abraham. Jehovah appeared to Abraham. That was the second person of the Trinity. We also find that Jehovah appeared to each one of the patriarchs. The name Jehovah does not exclusively refer to the second person of the Trinity. There are some exceptions. For example, um, in Psalm chapter 110, Psalm 110, verse 1, we find there that Jehovah speaks to the Messiah. So this is God the Father speaking to the Messiah. There's a few other places. But this is what the Scripture makes abundantly clear that any time 
Jehovah is manifested to his people, which includes not just them seeing Jehovah, but even hearing him speak. That is always a reference to the second person of the Trinity. That's what this, the scriptures demonstrate. Now, we understand that the New Testament is an expansion of that mirror. The New Testament is generally divided into four sections. There's the Gospels, the Book of Acts, the Epistles, and the Book of Revelation. The four Gospels make up nearly 50% of the entire New Testament. It's closer to maybe 48%. Did you get the point? Almost half of your New Testament is specifically about Jesus. Does that not suggest a divine emphasis to you? You see, one of the questions we always have to ask ourselves when we read through the Gospels, the question needs to be, what does this tell me about Jesus? What does this tell me about Jesus? I've heard many messages on Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 41. And the way that the preacher normally applies that and preaches that text, it's we need to be more like Mary and less like Martha. We must be more like Mary and less like Martha. You know, it's true. We do need to be more like Mary and less like Martha. That's not the point of the text. It's not. The point is, what does the text tell me about my Savior? Okay, I agree with what was said about red-letter editions. But if you had one, and you looked at that text, you would realize that the account ends with the words of Jesus with what he said to Martha. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Since the account ends with those words of our Savior, we should be asking ourselves, what does our Savior's statement there to Martha tell us about himself? It shows that Jesus is more interested in what he can do for us than what we can do for him. He is more interested. Your Savior is more interested in what he can do for you than what you can do for him. Now, did I say he wasn't interested in what you can do for him? I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Don't don't charge me with that. I'm saying... He is more interested in what he can do for you than what you can do for him. There is something desperately wrong with a Christian who would rather serve Christ than to be like him. Let me say that again. There is something desperately wrong with a Christian who would rather serve Christ than be like him. See, the truth of the matter is, the more you're like Christ, the better you can serve Him. That's And Jesus makes that abundantly clear. So yes, Jesus is more interested in what He can do for you than what you can do for Him, which means you need to be more interested in what He can do for you than what you can do for Him. I'm not saying don't do things for Him. But where should your focus be? We come to the book of Acts. I'm trying to show you how Christ is revealed as we move through the New Testament from those four main sections. Acts chapter 1 and verse 1, we read this. We find that Luke describes his gospel as an account of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. He is saying then, 
The book of Acts, which is the second volume of his, actually two-volume gospel, is a continuation of what Jesus of what Jesus now does and teaches. I have a list that I give out to my students in my Gospels and Acts class where there's like over, what, 20 times where Jesus in the book of Acts is described as personally working. Personally working. But we also understand that Christ is working through his church, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But we also need to understand that in all of this, Jesus is revealing himself. He is teaching. He is doing. And thus revealing his glory. When we come to the epistles, what I want to point out here is that repeatedly the apostles applied the person and work of Christ to those that they were writing to. I'm just going to give you a couple examples. Philippians chapter 2. What is it that Paul is getting at in Philippians chapter 2, the first 11 verses? He is showing that Christ is the ultimate example of humility. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter presents Christ as the ultimate example of one who suffered for righteousness' sake. Now, the book of Revelation, let me just point out a few things from the letters to the seven churches of Asia. The book of Revelation begins with Christ giving a vision to John of himself. And then in each one of those letters that Christ, in where he addresses each one of the churches of Asia, the seven churches of Asia, he begins with a description of himself from that vision. And in that description, it's always specifically appropriate to the needs of whatever congregation he is addressing in that letter. I'm just going to pick on a few of these. In the letter to Pergamos, we learn that Christ, who has the sharp two-edged sword, is the answer to those who hold the false doctrine. Letter to Thyatira. There we learn that Christ, who has eyes like unto a flame of fire, is the answer to those who hold to secret sins. Letter to Philippi, the Philippian church. We learn that Christ, who is sovereign, is the answer to those who are weak. In the letter to the church of Laodicea, we learn that Christ, who is faithful, who is the faithful and true witness, is the answer to those who are self-deceived. Think of the example of Christ. What is his desire is to reveal his glory, to reveal himself in such a way that it specifically meets the needs of his people. Yes, you should be looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. And so, yes, we see the people, the process, but now the purpose of this transformation. Notice how Paul goes on, are being transformed into the same image. That's the purpose of this transformation, is to be conformed into the very image of Christ. Now, the King James has changed, and the New King James has, a pro- has properly translated this verb here as transformed, are being transformed. And the, the verb form here has the idea of an ongoing transformation. If you don't believe me, you can check with uh, your intern should have enough knowledge of Greek to figure that one out. 
But the point here is, this transformation is to be a characteristic of genuine believers. Now, according to the Greek scholar Richard Trench, this verb here, being transformed, refers to an internal transformation. And he says it expresses undergoing a deep, abiding change. Now, if you remember your high school biology, and if you remember your instructor, your teacher talking about a caterpillar turning into a butterfly, do you remember the term metamorphosis? Well, the term metamorphosis comes from this Greek word. And the word image, we're transformed into the same image. It does have the idea of likeness. And again, the same scholar, Richard Trench, says that the word here assumes a prototype. I think that's very interesting, prototype. In other words, you and I, as we're beholding Christ's glory in the scripture, are being transformed, transformed into a representation of the prototype, which is Christ himself. Sanctification is, is something that happens within us. Next, Paul brings out the progress of this transformation. He has this phrase, from glory to glory, from glory to glory. Some have suggested that means um, earthly glory becoming heavenly glory or Christ's glory becoming our glory. Those are probably accurate, but not what Paul is getting at. This expression refers to the progressive development of this transformation. The idea here is that we move from one level of glory to a higher level of glory. And so the ESV accurately translates it from one degree of glory to another. That's the sense. I think it's also interesting that the Greeks used to refer to their children as living images of the parents. When a child is born, there are a few observable characteristics that the child has with his parents. It might be, have you ever heard somebody look at a little baby and say, oh, he has the color of your eyes, or he, he has the color of your hair. Or, I mean, there's certain things that we recognize that, it's at, right after the baby is born, there's certain these characteristics. But what happens as the child grows? Not only are more and more physical characteristics observable, but a lot of times intellectual, emotional, even talents. How often do we see families where maybe both parents are musicians and the children all become musicians? You follow where I'm saying here? We should bear the image of Christ because he bears the image of God the Father. I was debating whether or not I would add this to my sermon, but I want to tell you this story. There were two men who worked at a factory they had bought brand new vehicles, brand new cars. But because the factory put out this soot, you know, from the smokestack, they didn't want to park anywhere in, anywhere in the factory parking lot. So there was a wide spot in the road where they would stop and park their cars. And then they would go across this rather wide field and catch a train because it was going by very slowly so they could get to um, the factory without any trouble. And then when they got to the factory, they'd just jump off. And so they would do this back and forth. Well, one day they both were running late. 
and they were going to they're afraid they're going to miss the train and as they were making this mad dash across the field there was a little boy very small boy who had a handful of bottle caps and he was going to go trade him in for some kind of a toy <clears throat> and one of the men didn't see the little boy cuz he was looking at the train and he ran into that little boy knocked him to the ground he stopped to pick up the little boy and the other man said come on we're going to miss the come on come on guess that's okay you keep going and so he gets the little boy up to his feet. The little boy's crying. I mean, he was hit hard. And the man begins to pick up those bottle caps <coughs> that he got and it's just strewn all over the place when he hit them. The little boy's standing there crying with his hands cupped like this. And the man is telling the little boy how sorry he was that he hit him. And he says, okay. I think I finally picked up all of your bottle caps. I, th I, th I think you've got everything. <coughs> the little boy looked up to that man and said, Mister, are you Jesus? Is there a higher compliment than that? Mister, are you Jesus? Paul concludes by giving us the producer of this transformation. He has here, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The Greek literally reads, the Lord, the Spirit. Which is how the New American Standard has it. All you need to do is go back to verse 17, which shows that Christ, by His Spirit, is the one who produces this transformation. He is indeed the author and finisher of your faith. My dad used to work for Farmer's Home Administration. And one day after he got home from work, he told us an interesting story that related to farming. Now, dad didn't know if this was a true story or not. He said it could have been. But it's about this young man who was going through the Midwest selling sets on sets of encyclopedias on farming. And the young man was having great success selling these encyclopedias on farming. Well, one day he knocked on a farmhouse door and the farmer who opened the door invited him in and the young man sat down and started his sales pitch and told that farmer all the advantages of owning this set of encyclopedias on farming. He pointed out that the farmer would have at his fingertips all kinds of valuable information. And after the sales pitch, the farmer said to that young man, that the set would do him no good. Well, this shocked the young man. He just couldn't believe it. And he explained, well, if the issue is the cost of this set of encyclopedias, understand this, that after you implement the knowledge that's in this set, your farm will be so much more productive, it'll more than compensate for the cost of these, this set. And so the young man actually began his sales pitch again, thinking that somehow he must have left something out. So he begins again, and finally the farmer said to him, young man, you don't understand. The reason that set of encyclopedias will do me no good is that I already know more about farming than I'm practicing now. I already know more about farming than I'm practicing now. Uh-oh. Where am I going next? Do you know more about Christianity than you're practicing now? Oh, yes. I asked my question 
that question of myself too. So don't th- don't think that I'm just. No, we all need to acknowledge, you know, to a certain extent at least, we know more about Christianity than we're practicing now. You see, you and I need more than information. We do need it. But what we need is transformation. And that transformation that we need comes from by beholding the glory of Christ in the Scriptures. Understand this, that when we see Christ revealed in the Scripture, when we see teaching about Christ, when we see what he's doing in the Old Testament as the second person of the Trinity, all of this is something that should be making us more like our Savior. The Bible shows us that Christ is full of compassion, mercy, love, righteousness, truth, faithfulness, forgiveness. And in Acts chapter 10, he's described as one who went around doing good. Christ has purpose to make you like himself. He has has purpose to make you like himself by beholding his transforming Glory in the scriptures. Are you reading the Bible daily? And when you do it, you just read a text, and that's it. One of the things I appreciated about my Bible, my my wife, is that she doesn't just read the scriptures; she studies the scriptures. Her favorite commentary is the one by Jameson Fawcett and Brown. She uses it constantly while she's going through the scriptures. So it's not just a matter of reading the scriptures, but looking for the glory of Christ as we go through the scriptures. And you will be made like your Savior as you behold his transforming glory in the scriptures. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you for how Christ is indeed revealed not just in the New Testament, yes, abundantly clearer in the New Testament, but, Lord, even in the Old Testament. Lord, we pray that we would read your word, study your word, with a view of seeing the glory of our dear Savior manifested there and thus be changed. We ask this not only for our own sake, but even particularly for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.